Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, this morning we pray that we would have humble hearts, submissive hearts, eager hearts, hearts that are humble, submissive, and eager to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We pray, O oh God, for hearts that are hungry to receive the bread of life, hearts that are thirsty to receive the water of life, hearts that want to hear what the Spirit has to say to this church, your church. Lord, we lift up this hour to you. May you speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is a book about many things. It is primarily a book about God. It is significantly a book about human salvation. It is a book about heaven and hell, about kings and kingdoms. It is a book of history, a book of poetry, a book of prophecy. But if you really stop to think about it, the Bible is also a book about giving. The Bible is full of giving. From the very beginning of scripture in Genesis 1, God gives. Genesis 1.29 says, Behold, I have given you every plant for food. God's very first words to mankind are about giving. The whole trinity represents a giving God. John 3.16, God the Father gave his only begotten Son. Matthew 20.28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John 6.63 says, the Spirit gives life. The Bible is a book about the greatest giver who ever was, God himself. The Bible is a book about a God who gives. And it is also a book about how God redeems for himself a people he wants to become just like him, givers. Jesus himself taught frequently about giving. More specifically, Jesus spoke much about money. Lord Jesus himself taught 38 parables in his ministry, 16 of which alone are focused on money. It is estimated that 15% of everything Jesus said in the New Testament had to do with money. That is more than what he had to say about heaven and hell combined. Why was Jesus this concerned with money? It is because he knew that we would be concerned with money. George Barna published statistics that since 9-11, American evangelicals give 2.5% of their income. 22% give less than $100 a year. 33% give less than $500 a year. The reality remains that at a time when evangelicals are the richest we have ever been, 
we are giving the least we ever have. Now, surely this is because we must not see money as important. This must be because we do not see money as significant. Or is it the opposite? Has money become too important? Has money become too significant? There are, without exaggeration, hundreds of verses on money and possessions. There are 288 verses directly on giving in the Bible. Money is a part of the whole counsel of God. Therefore, we cannot escape this. A biblical ecclesiology, a biblical theology of the church, must include a biblical theology of money. This morning in our series on the communion of the saints, the doctrine of the church, we will be looking at what the Bible says about our money, about our giving, about our offering. Here are six principles of giving to God. And six principles of giving to the eternal temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ. First, the stewardship principle. The first and most basic principle when it comes to a theology of money is the principle of stewardship. Now we must understand there is a profound difference between ownership and stewardship. Most of us consider ourselves owners of our money. By default, we consider ourselves owners of our possessions. But the Bible speaks otherwise. It speaks loud and clear. Consider these verses. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Ezekiel 18.4, behold, all souls are mine. Deuteronomy 8.18, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you have been bought with a price. God owns it all. A cattle and a thousand hills are his. The gold and silver are his. Every beast of the forest is his. Our lives, our souls, our all are his. It all belongs to him. Therefore, none of it really belongs to us. God looks upon everything that you have, everything that you earn, and he rightly says, mine. Most of us think in terms of ownership, when we should be thinking in terms of stewardship. We are merely stewards of what he has entrusted to us, which means we will be held accountable for what we do with God's money, God's money. Brethren, listen, what we do with our money is really what we do with God's money. It belongs to God first and foremost. This means that when God prospers you, he does so with his purposes in mind. God prospers you not to use on yourself. 
God prospers you to use for his purposes. God prospers you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. Now, if this is true, when it comes to our giving, we need a paradigm shift. Most of us think, well, this week I am giving my offering to God. But perhaps the better, more biblical way to think about it is this week I am giving my offering back to God. I am giving my offering back to its original owner. I am giving my offering back to God who owns it all. This is because your offering belongs to the Lord. Your offering belongs to the Lord first and foremost. It does not belong to you. When you drop that offering check in the bag, you are giving to God what is already his. This is why Malachi 3.8 says to those Israelites who refused to give tithes, they refused to give offering, they refused to give to God, God says to them, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You see, brothers and sisters, your offering belongs to the Lord whether you give it to him or not. Your offering belongs to God, whether you put it in the basket or keep it in your pocket. O Lord, every dollar is yours, every dime is yours, every penny is yours. Secondly, the eternity principle. Matthew 6.19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Now, is Jesus here saying that we should not store up earthly treasure because treasure is bad? Did he say treasure is worthless? No, he says quite the opposite. He says, do not store up earthly treasure because it is fragile. It is vulnerable. It can be lost. It will be lost. No matter how much money you make, No matter how many houses you buy, or cars you buy, or yachts you buy, you can't take it with you when you die. It's just going to burn. One one stat that they teach you in medical school is one out of one people dies. When John D. Rockefeller died, someone asked his accountant, how much did Mr. Rockefeller leave behind? His accountant replied, he left all of it. This reality is starkly illustrated for us in the excavation of the city of Pompeii. When Mount Vesuvius erupted, the ancient city of Pompeii was buried in ash. Buildings and structures and trees were buried. But so too were people. People died with their body shapes, their postures, even their facial expressions, petrified in volcanic ash. Archaeologists discovered the body of one woman in particular. Her feet were pointed towards the city gate. She was obviously running for her life. But her face was turned backwards. Her eyes were fixated on something just beyond her grasp. A bag of beautiful pearls. And there she was, frozen in time, 
in a pose of eternal, unquenchable desire. She was reaching for something that would never last. Brothers and sisters, are you reaching for something that will never last? Are you fixated on something that you will never keep? We need to look at our money with an eternal perspective. Jesus says in Matthew 6.20, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Don't store up earthly treasure, but do store up heavenly treasure. Go after gain. Gain is good. Go after it, but go after heavenly treasure. Go after eternal treasure. Go after everlasting treasure. There are no moths in heaven. There is no rust in heaven. There are no thieves in heaven. Heavenly treasure is indestructible. It is eternal. It is infinite. It is everlasting. I believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I just don't believe that it will come at all in this lifetime. We will have health, wealth, and prosperity of the best kind, of the most God-glorifying kind in the life to come. Now, don't just go and put that on Twitter and <laughs> Facebook. Oh, somebody already posted on Facebook. <laughs> Philippians 3.20 reminds us our citizenship is in heaven. It is absurd for Christians to act as if this world is our final home. This job is our final home. This house is our final home. This is not our final home. We are destined for heaven. We need to give here on earth to invest in our heavenly home. And when we give here on earth, we invest in the eternal kingdom. Just think, when you get to heaven, when you get to heaven, maybe you will meet someone who was saved because of the money you gave to missions. Maybe you will meet a pastor trained. Maybe you will meet a saint who has helped in a time of great poverty. We need to give here on earth to store up heavenly treasure. Jim Elliot said it right. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Thirdly, the first fruits principle. The first fruits principle. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Deuteronomy 26, verse 2. You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. The first fruits was the initial portion of the harvest, the initial crops of the harvest, the first crops of the harvest. You see, if you were a farmer in Israel, all your income came during the harvest season. You planted, you sowed, you watered all throughout the year but you didn't actually make any income until the harvest. And during the harvest, God says, the very first crops that you harvest, I want you to take them to the temple and to give them to me. The principle of first fruits is very simple. The first of everything belongs to God. 
before you take out any for yourself, before you take out any for your family, and you should, you should take care of your family, you should take care of yourself, but before you do that, before everyone and everything, you are to take some and give it to the Lord. The first of everything belongs to God. The first fruits belongs to God. There was another part of the Old Testament law that dealt with the leftovers of the harvest. They were called the gleanings. The gleanings were the leftover of the harvest, of the harvesting field. The Israelites were commanded to leave something for the poor, so that the poor, the destitute, those who had nothing, could have something to eat. They were allowed to go out into the field and to glean at the edges of the field so that they would not starve. You remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was gleaning in the field. She was going out to the edges of the field and taking the leftovers of the crops. Now you say, Ben, how in the world does any of this apply to me? I don't live in Old Testament Israel. I'm not an Israelite. I am not a farmer. What does first fruits and gleanings have to do with me at all? Well, great question. Let us translate the principle of first fruits for us today. Translation, God has legitimate claim to the priority of your life. God demands the best of your life. When God says in the harvest, I want the first fruits, I do not want the gleanings, God is saying, I want the priority, I do not want the leftovers. When it comes to your money, I want you to think of me before you think of anyone else. When it comes to your income, I want you to think of the Lord your God Almighty before you think of anything else. I demand the priority, says God. Now, sadly, we often have it backwards. See, God wants the first fruits, not the gleanings. But we often have it backwards. Usually what we do is we sit back and we calculate, and after we've calculated for all of our expenses, the fancy vacation, the, the new car, the new hobby, well, then I'll see what I have left over that I can give to God. After I've met all my obligations, after I've met all my delights, then I'll see what I have left to give to God. Brothers and sisters, you know what you are doing? You are giving to God the gleanings, not the first fruits. You are giving to God the leftovers, not the priority. Giving to God should be the priority. So practically what this means is when you get that paycheck, your first thought should not be, well, how can I spend this money on myself? Well, how can I spend this money on my family? No. Your first thought should be, I am thankful to God for the money that he has given to me. How can I use this to further God's kingdom? To think of God before you think of anything else. Donald Whitney tells a story about when he was a child 
He was given 15 cents as a child, as an allowance, three nickels. And his parents gave him three boxes taped together, and they all had labels. The first box said, church. The second box said, savings. The third box said, spendings. And he was supposed to put the coins in, in that order. The first nickel belonged to the house of God. The second nickel goes into the savings. And then, and only then, was he allowed to spend the third nickel on himself. This exercise solidified in his mind that the first of his money always belonged to God. God wants the first fruits, not the gleanings. Fourthly, the tithing principle. The tithing principle. Now, before we proceed, I need to make a most basic clarification. And that is, tithing means tenth. Tithing means 10%. It means giving 10%. It is wrong to say, I tithe 5%. You can't tithe 5% because tithe means 10%. Tithing means tenth. To tithe is to give 10% of your gross income to the Lord. And you say, how do you know it's gross? Well, I can't say for sure, but it only makes sense when you think of the principle of the first fruits. The Mosaic Law commanded the Israelites to tithe to the Lord. In fact, if you really want to be specific, the Israelites were commanded three tithes. First, a regular tithe to support the work of the priesthood and the temple. Secondly, a festival tithe for the production of the feasts. And thirdly, a charity tithe given every third year to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And if you actually calculate all three of these tithes together, Israelites were commanded to give 23.3% of their income, not just 10%. This was accepted by every single Israelite. Every Israelite knew this, and every Israelite accepted this. This was a straightforward provision of law. Now, understandably, the question on all of your minds right now is, is tithing a requirement for me? Is tithing a necessity for New Testament Christians? There are some people that argue that since tithing is not spelled out as an exact command in the New Testament, that we are not required to tithe. And you know what? They would be right. There is no specific command in the New Testament that requires you to tithe. I cannot stand up here and say, well, you must tithe. You must give 10% or more of your income or you're sinning. No. There's nothing like that in the New Testament. It is not a part of a New Testament requirement for New Testament Christians. There is no command given in the New Testament that says Christians must tithe. But I also believe that we should not go to the opposite extreme and say that the tithe has absolutely no applicability to us today. I believe that there is a principle that indeed does 
apply to us today? The most common argument against the tithe is that tithing was a part of the Old Testament Mosaic law. And therefore, since tithing was a part of the Mosaic law and we are not under the Mosaic law, we do not have to tithe. That's a good argument. That is a good argument. But if we can show that tithing is not just a part of the Mosaic law, if we can show that tithing transcends the law, then there must also be a principle which transcends the law. If we can show that tithing is not confined to the law, then there must be a principle which is not confined to the law. That is what I will seek to show you this morning. Tithing predates the law, and it postdates the law. Meaning, tithing transcends the law. It is not just a part of the Mosaic law. First, the principle of tithing predates the law. The principle of tithing precedes the Mosaic law. It came before the Mosaic law. It came before Mount Sinai. Genesis 14, 18 through 20, speaking of Abram. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. He, that is Abram, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth, that is a tithe of all. In Genesis 14, Abram meets this mysterious figure named Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God. And Abram gives Melchizedek 10% of all the spoils that he had captured in battle. That is, Abram gave a tithe. And remember, this is Genesis 14. This is way before Mount Sinai. This is way before Moses. This is way before the law. Tithing predates the law. Let's look at another example. Abram tithed, but Jacob did too. In Genesis 28, Jacob flees from his brother Esau, and he has a dream, and he sees a ladder going up into heaven. In Genesis 28, 22, he sets up a stone of remembrance and says, This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Jacob tithed. Jacob gave God a tenth of all. Jacob understood the tithe. This was before the law. This was before the Mosaic legislation. This came way before that. The tithe was practiced long before the Mosaic law. So there must be some principle that is there, even before it was codified into law at Mount Sinai. Not only that, let's also see that the principle of tithing postdates the law. More specifically, tithing is a principle seen in the New Testament. First, Jesus mentions the tithe. In fact, 
Jesus approved the tithe, and he did not rescind it. He did not abrogate it. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, as you can imagine, the Pharisees were fastidious tithers. But they tithed out of a heart of legalism, not out of a heart that loved God. And so here, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees about their tithing. And here, Jesus has the perfect opportunity to say, you know, I just want to clarify that God really isn't concerned with the tithe. All he really wants from you is justice and mercy and faithfulness. But don't concern yourself with the little things like the tithe. He has the perfect opportunity to rescind the tithe. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says, yes, focus on the big things. Focus on justice and mercy and faithfulness, but do so without neglecting the tithe. Jesus did not abolish the tithe. He upheld it. Jesus does not rescind the tithe. He establishes it. Furthermore, Paul mentions the principle of the tithe. 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Well, here in verse 13, Paul speaks of the Levites of the Old Testament, and he says that they're supported by their share. What is their share? Their share is... The tithe. The tithe under the Old Covenant was the share of the Levites. Remember, in Old Testament Israel, the Levites were the only tribes that were not given land in the land of Canaan as an inheritance. Every single tribe was given land as an inheritance in Israel, except the Levites. Instead, the share of their inheritance was the tithe. Then Paul brings this practice into the New Testament, verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So there is a parallel between the Old Testament tithe and New Testament offering. In the Old Covenant, the tithes of the people supported the Levitical priesthood. In the New Covenant, the offering of the people supported the work of the pastors. The tithe corresponds to the offering. The tithe is parallel to the offering. The offering is rooted in the tithe. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This is the quintessential verse on giving offering during the Lord's Day, during Lord's Day worship in the New Testament, this is the central verse that everybody points to. In this verse, the word store up is the Greek word theserizo. And here, Paul is making a clear allusion 
to the Old Testament. Because this word appears in a very specific place in the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation in Greek. It appears in Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Thesarus. Same word. So that there may be food in my house. 1 Corinthians 16.2 is a reference to Malachi 3.10. It is a reference to bringing the tithe into the temple. Paul links the offering of the church to the tithe of the temple. So Jesus discussed the tithe, and Paul discussed the tithe. But then you say to me, well, Ben, there's still no illustration or example of any New Testament giving which requires the tithe. There is still no example of a Christian in the New Testament who is required to tithe. And you're right. As Randy Alcorn so exquisitely points out, Every single example of New Testament giving exceeds the tithe. The New Testament church was not giving just 10%. They were giving more. They were giving more generously, more sacrificially. That's why I completely agree, and I completely agree, there is no command in the New Testament that requires Christians to tithe. And it is wrong to say that if you don't tithe, you are sinning. That is wrong. I completely agree. But I believe that there is a principle for us that is here. Not a law, but a principle. Not a rule, but an encouragement. Not a command, but a guideline. Something to help us. Something to guide our giving. John Piper says, the best way that I know how to capture the spirit of the New Testament generosity is simply to say, the issue is not how much must I give, but how much dare I keep. Not shall I tithe, but how much of the money that I hold in trust for Christ can I take for my private use? The financial issue in the church today is not tithing, but exorbitance of lifestyle. The question is not, can I afford to tithe, but can I justify the lifestyle that consumes 90% of my income? And behind that is the question, do I love to use God's money to spread justice and mercy and spiritual hope in the world, or do I prefer to embezzle this money to purchase more and more personal comfort? Fifthly, the heart principle. The heart principle. Beyond any discussion about the tithe, beyond any mention about the tithe, it behooves me to say that the most important thing in your giving is your heart. The most important thing is not the amount of money that you give. It is not the percentage of money that you give. The most important thing is your heart when you give. Giving is to be an act of love towards God. We are to give out of joy, not out of legalism. Out of cheerfulness, not out of burden. We are to give not just externally, but internally. Not just with our hands, but with our heart. 
2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The reality is when the gospel transforms your heart, the gospel also transforms your view of money. When the gospel transforms your heart, the gospel also transforms your view of giving. Whitney says, a powerful testimony to a transformed life is a transformed checkbook. Spurgeon said, I don't think much of a conversion if it doesn't touch a man's purse. Randy Alcorn says, we are most like God when we are giving. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. If your heart has been gripped by grace, the duty of giving becomes a delight. Giving is one of the most concrete manifestations of a heart that has been transformed by grace. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our attitude and use of money will tell us a lot about our heart towards God. If your treasure is earthly treasure, that's where your heart will be. If your bank account is more important than your Bible, you've got a heart problem. If the Wall Street Journal is more important than your prayer life, you've got a heart problem. What you do with your money can tell you a lot about your relationship with God. Now, the ironic thing is, is that most of us are absolutely sure that when it comes to our money, we do not have a heart problem. We're just sure. In more than a few years of ministry, I've had many people come to me and confess that they are struggling with lust, they're struggling with jealousy, bitterness, they're struggling with pride or anger. But you know what I have never had? I have never had a single person, not a single person, come to me and confess, I'm struggling with greed. I'm struggling with materialism. When it comes to greed, we are always sure that it is true of somebody else, and we are absolutely sure that it is not true of us. How many times in our care groups do we say, oh, I, I know I need to pray more. I know, I know I need to read my Bible more. You know, I really feel like I need to evangelize more. I've been struggling with that. But when was the last time in your care group you've ever heard somebody say, well, I know I need to give more. I know I need to give more sacrificially to God. I know I haven't been giving like I, like I should. When it comes to our evangelism, when it comes to our prayer life, when it comes to our Bible reading, we are all sure we need improvement. But when it comes to our giving, somehow, we are absolutely sure that we do not need improvement. Oh, friends, in an effort to be fully transparent, in a spirit of full disclosure, I just want to tell you that I do not have a conflict of interest in preaching this message. I do not receive any financial compensation from this church at all. I am not financially supported by this church in any way. I work a full-time secular job, just like all of you. 
I am in the same boat you are. This is to say, I am not after your money, but I am after your heart. Both your heart and my heart. I am preaching to my heart just as much as I am preaching to yours. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I have a desire that we would give bountifully so that we may reap bountifully. I have a desire that we would give generously so that we may be blessed generously. My desire is that each and every single one of, this, of, of all of us in this church would give in such a way that it reflects a heart that is consumed with Jesus, not with money. Some of you know the joy that comes with giving. Some of you know that when you commit yourself to sacrificial giving, it can be a significant step in your spiritual growth. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine how God would grow us as a church? Not financially, not monetarily, but can you imagine how God would grow us as a church spiritually, in our spiritual walks, in our Christian maturity, if we gave like the Bible calls us to give? Can you imagine how God would grow us as a church if we gave like God is our God and not money? Can you imagine how God would grow us as a church if we gave like Jesus Christ is the most important thing and not money? Can you imagine that? Can you fathom that? Can you think of that? Well, let's stop imagining. And let's do it and find out. Let's give and find out how God would bless us and grow us. Sixth and last, the worship principle. Giving is an act of worship. Psalm 96 verse 8 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship involves bringing an offering. God is particularly glorified when we bring our offering. Your offering is like a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. Giving is about worship. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus makes it plain for us. He makes it absolutely clear. Black and white, all or nothing. Either God will be your master or money will be your master. Either you will worship God or you will worship money. Either you will use your wealth to serve God or you will use God to serve your wealth. You cannot separate finances from faith. It is impossible. You see, money can be an incredible servant. But you must always understand it must always be a servant and never a master. Money is a great servant, but money is a cruel and harsh master. John Piper says, the inner essence of worship is the treasuring of God as infinitely valuable above everything. 
Money and things are a big part of life, and therefore God intends them to be a big part of worship, since all of life is to be worshipped. So the way you worship with your money and your possessions is to get them and use them and lose them in a way that shows how much you treasure God, not money. You might be a visitor here with us this morning, or perhaps you are an unbeliever in our midst. And I am so glad that you are here. And I so dearly do not want you to misunderstand. God is not opposed to the rich. Look at Abraham. Look at Job. Look at Solomon. Look at Joseph of Arimathea. Look at Priscilla and Aquila. They were all rich in this world. But more importantly, they were rich toward God. You see, Christianity is not a religion of mandatory poverty. No. Christianity is a call to obliterate money as the idol of your life. It is a call to tear down money off the altar of your heart. Christianity is a call to erect in its place the God of the Bible as your only true object of worship. No, Christianity is not a call to mandatory poverty. It is a call to wealth, spiritual riches beyond everything you could ask or think. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Brothers and sisters, who do you serve today? Which God are you serving? Are you serving the one true and living God? Or are you serving the false god called wealth? It's black or white, one or the other, all or nothing, cannot be both. Brothers and sisters, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the treasure of our hearts. You are our hearts' greatest desire. We love you more than all the wealth that this world can offer, more than all the pleasures that this life can offer. We love you more than life itself. Oh, Lord, prayer of our hearts this morning is that this would be the verse of our song. These would be the lyrics of our heart. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.